We're in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 19. And so far, all the other teachers, as we've discussed the passage that I get to teach, they're all excited. Say, wow, lucky you, Brian, you get to teach on this wonderful passage. I'm like, I don't see it that way. There's like, what, people could do entire semesters of college on this one passage, and here I am trying to pull some stuff out to talk about. So sometimes it's harder when you've got a large, broad swath of information to cover. So uh, we'll just get into it. I really want to focus on the, the idea of the supremacy of Christ, who he is, and that's what Paul is doing here. Uh, I want to first read Psalms 145. As we get started here. And I'm hoping by the end of this Bible study, you'll understand why I'm reading this psalm. It's a song of praise of David. It says, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power, to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord. And let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Lord, we do bless your name. We praise you. We come to study your word and to learn about you. uh, To learn um, not so much about you, but it is to know you. Maybe that's a better way to put it. We don't just want to know facts of you, Lord. We want to know you personally. And we want you to know us personally. And so as we come to your word today, Lord, I pray you'll help us to see you, to grow in our relationship with you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. 
We'll go back to Psalm 145 later on, but uh, the overall thing that I want to get out of that is knowing Christ and knowing Him should cause us to praise and worship and bring us to a place of praise and worship. So now let's read the passage that we're in today in Colossians. And uh, I'm going to start back in verse 13, kind of where Doug ended up, and go through verse 22, where Mark will take over. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. First thought is, I'm really looking forward to next week's Sunday school lesson. That's going to be very encouraging, and uh, looking forward to hear what Mark has to say there, and uh, that's going to be fun. But in the meantime, we're looking at 15 through 19. So in this passage, we have one of the most concise definitions of the person and work of Jesus Christ in all of Scripture. If you just look at the passage itself, let's just go back through this very quickly in an overview, and we can see how Christ is put on display. The he there in verse 15, where it starts off the he in this passage is referring back to where you see in verse 13. He has delivered, that's God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have forgiveness, and we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That he is referring back to the son, the son that God has delivered us, has redeemed us through and by. So if we look down through, who is this he? In verse 15 it says, he is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. He is before all things. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. He is the firstborn from the dead. And he is, or it says he might be, preeminent. And then back up to verse 16, it says, By him, through him and for him, all things were created. In him, all things hold together. And in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This is Jesus Christ. That's who we're talking about. The only begotten Son. It's really the major theme of the book of Colossians. If you look at chapter 3, look over at chapter 3, verse 11, where it says this. Here, there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ 
is all and in all. Christ is all. Christ is in all. Christ is the reason and the result of all things. It's all about Christ. Look at John chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. And remind me, since we're on single service Sunday, when's my time? When do I need to finish up? Do you get it? I forget when we finish when we do one service. About 10 till, quarter till? That's what I thought, but I, I was just sitting here thinking to myself, I need to make sure of that. So John chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. It says, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. So what is Paul's main reason for delivering such a powerful and succinct declaration of Jesus Christ and is here in his letter to the Colossians? What, what, like just like in John here where he introduces Jesus where all things were made by him and through him. In him was life. The life was the light of man. Everything is about Christ. Everything is from Christ. What is Paul's reason for, for, for teaching this same doctrine, for, for expounding on Christ in such a way? And one of the major reasons in this letter is to deal with this Colossian heresy which has already been referred to and explained by some of some of the teachers already, but it's it's not really thoroughly identified in Colossians. It's not specifically laid out to say this is the Colossian heresy. We're going to learn more about it in chapters two, verses eight to twenty-three, where some of Paul's teachings show us the the the, the false teaching that he's correcting in this book. He's, he, he's specifically addressing those teachings there over in chapter 2. But here in our, in our passage today, Paul addresses just one aspect of this heresy by declaring the, the supremacy of Christ. The false teachers in Colossae were diminishing the person and the work of Christ. See, they were making him into some form of a high-ranking angel. They were denying both his divinity and his humanity. You know, in some of the commentaries, they were saying this Colossian heresy, it, it was kind of an early form of Gnosticism of, you know, I had this higher knowledge, and it involved really an angel worship, whereas they put Christ as this created high angel. He wasn't really God. He wasn't really man. He was just this high-ranking angel, this, this, this supreme spiritual being that was somewhere in the middle. But Paul here destroys that and he shows the divinity and the humanity of Christ and really even today this is the basis for many false teachings that lead to other errors of doctrine just like it did among the Colossians one of those errors is the denial of the sufficiency of Christ and salvation and Paul addresses that here in this portion of the letter just look over here at verse 12 and 14 what's he talking about there says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. Doug covered this last week, and if you look at how he, how, um, he shows the supremacy of Christ 
in the salvation of the lost there. You can see in verse 5, referring to God through His Son, qualifies us, He delivers us, He transfers us, and He redeems us. It's all God through Christ. It's not a work of ourselves. It's not something we can do through some higher knowledge. It's not something that's done in conjunction with Christ. It is Christ. Jesus is the linchpin in salvation. He's dealing with their misunderstanding of Christ and his work in salvation. And following his description of Christ here in these verses we're dealing with today, he continues his theology of the supremacy of Christ and salvation down in verse 20. Truly interesting. Look down at verse 20, and I don't want to take away from the next teaching, but it kind of shows us how dealing with who Christ is fits into this narrative of how he is supreme in salvation. In verse 20, it says that he reconciles us. In verse 21, he justifies us. In 22, you can see kind of a, a sanctification of us. And in verse 22, you also see really a glorification, right? He's presented us holy and blameless, sanctifying us and conforming us into his image that he could present us holy, glorified to God. So Christ, God, through Christ, is the supreme linchpin in all of salvation. It's all about him. And Paul's going to show that here as he spotlights Christ, who he is in his work. So he elaborates on Christ here in verse, starting in verse 15 saying, He is the image of the invisible God. This term image really could have three uses. It could be likeness, representation, and manifestation. Kind of three ways it can be used. And in referring to Christ here, the like, as the likeness, Christ is the exact likeness or mirror image of God. In Hebrews 1.3 it says he's the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Christ is the exact image. He is God in the flesh. And he's the representation of God. Christ represents God to us. John 1, verses 17 to 18 says this, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's right hand. He, Jesus, made him known to us. He represented Christ to us. He made him known. And in manifestation, Christ manifests God in this world. In 1 Timothy 3.16, it says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. Christ is God manifest in the flesh. And in 1 John 4.9, it says, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. He is the likeness, he is the representation, and he is the manifestation of God in this world. So the question is, how does this differ from the teaching that mankind was created in the image of God? Right? You hear people say, well, 
Genesis says God created man in his image. Here it's saying Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Is that one and the same? Does this mean that we are images of God in the same way that Christ is the image? It's true that mankind in Genesis 1-6 was created in the image of God. But here it says that Jesus Christ is the image of God. While mankind was made in the image of God, Jesus truly is God. We are simply made to resemble God in the immaterial part of our humanity. But Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is fully God. When Jesus came and walked on this earth, it wasn't as if this body took on divinity. No, divinity manifested itself in the flesh. Jesus is, was, and as we'll see here, always has been God and always will be God. Jesus was It says he is the image, and it says of the invisible God. So what exactly does this mean when it says the invisible God? Well, God is spirit, and therefore he can't be seen by mortal eyes. He exists outside of space and time. He's above all. This invisible God was made visible in the body of Jesus Christ. He came and dwelt among mankind, making God visible to mortal man. He not only did this in the physical sense by manifesting God in the flesh where mankind could now see him physically, could feel him, could touch him, could see him, but he also did it in the spiritual sense by making him known to mankind. Jesus Christ made the invisible God visible both in the sense of sight but also in the sense of knowledge. He came that mortal man might be reconciled to God and know him. It says in, 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 again in John 1.14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Sinful man is without hope of ever knowing God apart from the revelation of Jesus Christ. John 17, 3 to 4. Let's go over there and look at that. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, it says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Jesus came to earth and has taken on the form of the man, making the invisible God both seen and, as we've seen in these two verses, known to mankind. He is, is the invisible God manifest in the flesh that we may know him. And then it goes on in verse 15 to say, the firstborn of all creation. So here's where often we can kind of get off track. We, hopefully not, not we would get off track, but many get off track in understanding who Jesus Christ is. 
It's often used, this passage is, by false teachers to promote a false understanding of the Savior. Many use this to support their denial of the deity of Christ by claiming that this verse speaks of him as a created being. Though the word firstborn can be used to denote a chronological birth order, it's not what Paul is doing in this, in this instance here. The context alone shows us that this is not as what, what Paul is doing. You know, you, you ask, well, how do you know that? Well, the context of the book and the context of this immediate verse here, this immediate passage, shows us that that's not what he's doing. And this is important. Has anybody ever spoken with any uh, Jehovah's Witnesses or people like that that will run to this verse and say, see right there, look, Jesus was created. He's the firstborn of all creation. So looking at this context will help you understand what is he talking about. So one reason that we can say in this context that that is true is that he is teaching, he is not teaching Christ as a created, created being. To do so, remember in the context here, what did we say the Colossian heresy was? Part of the Colossian heresy was to say Christ is this created spiritual being. He's, he's neither, neither man nor God. He's this created being that is like a, a high-ranking angel. That's, that's the, the heresy that Paul is trying to battle against in this, in this section. And so would it make sense for Paul to be battling against that heresy and then to use language that would support that heresy? That, that wouldn't make sense at all. So in the context of the book here, we can see that there, this is not what he's talking about. He can't be talking about him being the firstborn, a created being among all other created beings because that would agree with the Colossian heresy and he's really attempting to refute this. It would be antithetical to his argument of the preeminence, divinity, and supremacy of Christ. So it would also be in conflict with the immediate context of this verse. Not just the whole of, of the teaching here, but this immediate context. How did he just describe Christ? He just described him as the in image or the exact likeness of the invisible God. And then he proceeded to, te- to describe him as the creator and supreme ruler of all heaven and earth right after this. That's what he's going to get to. How could Christ be both the creator, the image of God, the supreme ruler, and also be subservient to God and be a created being? That's impossible. So there has to be another explanation for how he's using this word firstborn. It doesn't fit in the narrative of this part of the letter to say he's created. So Paul is not describing Christ in terms of a chronological birth order. But what he's doing is he's describing Christ in terms of a hierarchical order. He is Jesus, the firstborn of all things, the firstborn of all creation. He's preeminent over all things, which he's going to get to again, right down here again in verse 18. He's preeminent over heaven and earth and all created beings. And all throughout Scripture, this isn't an uncommon way to use this passage or this word, this, this term, firstborn. If you think of in Exodus 4.22, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. 
So Israel here, or Jacob, is named the firstborn son of God. Was he the firstborn? No. So what is he talking about? He says he's, he's the firstborn son. He's preeminent in that relationship. He's the, the higher. He's speaking of him in a hierarchical manner, not a chronological birth order. Or look at Romans 8.29. Let's go over and look at that one. It says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And so he's talking about here as Christ being the firstborn, not among these lineage of people, but as we we discuss again in Colossians later, he's the firstborn, the head of the church, this hierarchical. He's describing him as the head here. And in Revelation 1.5, we can flip over and look at that one if you want to join me. It says in this letter to the churches, he says, and from, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings of earth. So the first thing when you're looking at that is, was Christ the first being to ever be resurrected from the dead? No, right? There was other people that died and were brought, Christ himself brought Lazarus back from the dead, did he not? So he's not, he can't be saying he's the first person to be brought back from the dead. No, and it goes on to explain that. He's the ruler of the kings of the earth. Being the firstborn from the dead, firstborn here is referring to this hierarchical. It's a use of that term to show hierarchy in leadership. And in Psalm 89 is another really good one. We'll just go look at that one. Psalm 89, verse 27. Psalm 89, verse 27, speaking of really David in the direct context, but Christ as well in a prophetic context. I will establish his offspring forever in his throne. Oops, I'm sorry, I'm reading 29. I will make... Him, the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So he describes exactly right there what firstborn means, right? I will make him the firstborn. In being the firstborn, what is he? He is the, he's the first person to be born. He's the first created being. No, he says, I'll make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So we know here that what Paul is referring to when he, when he speaks of, uh, Christ is not him being this first created being, but he is preeminent. He is above all. You can see that Paul is teaching that Christ is the firstborn, the preeminent one, which he states again later in verse 18. This proper understanding of how to handle Paul's use of firstborn is not only helpful in our own personal study of Scripture, but it's also helpful in our evangelistic efforts as well. 
Especially, like I said, when you run into those that are promoting these Arian heresies of the, the, the Jehovah's Witnesses are ex- is probably the best example. Being able to rightly handle passages such as this when they use them to promote their false teaching is extremely helpful. It's, it's things like this that when we study the Bible can not only uh, lift our eyes up to heaven and magnify Christ in our lives, but can also equip us now to go out and deal with those that are teaching false teaching. We, we need to be prepared, right? To be ready to give, to give an answer for the hope that lies within us when people challenge us. So moving to verse 16, Christ is now the creator. By him, all things, collectively, all things were created in heaven and on earth, both visible and invisible. Here Paul answers one of life's great existential questions. Where did this all come from? We ask the question, where did I come from? Where did this come from? It's a great question of life. And he answers this question here. It all came from Christ. He is the supreme creator of all things. Here we're given a more clear picture of who was spoken of in the Genesis account of creation. Jesus Christ is the one spoken of in the crea- who created all things by the power of his word. All things visible, it's, it's somewhat easy for us to understand, right? We can see the visible. We can, we can comprehend him creating the earth and the, 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 the stars and the, the, the sky and all the, all the animals. We can see that. On the other uh, <clears> hand, <throat> uh, On the other hand, the invisible can really be hard for us to comprehend. What is he referring to here? He refers to the visible. We understand that, but he says the visible and the invisible. Well, he goes on then to give greater detail of what this invisible is. Look over here at verse 16 again. He says, both on heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. And then he describes what this invisible is, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Paul is referring to the created spiritual world of the angelic beings. You can see this language used in other places like Colossians 2 and Ephesians 6. Think of Ephesians 6. Go go over and look at it real quick. I don't want to go to all of them, but we can go look at Ephesians real quick. Ephesians 6.12. I mean, he's talking about the armor of God, and he says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against what? Rulers, authorities, cosmic powers in this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There's this heavenly created order, this spiritual created order that has, has order in creation, and it, it is not out of the realm of the authority of Christ. He created it all. He is the supreme authority of it all. Psalm 33, 1 through 9. Read that one with me. We're running all over the place today. Psalm 33, 1 through 9. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done as faithfulness. He loves 
righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. He gathers the waters of the sea as as a heap. He puts the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, is the supreme creator of all things and thereby worthy of all of our praise and worship. It was made by him and through him and for him. Praise his holy name. The study of Christ should produce a desire in us to praise and worship him. It was made. Look at verse 16. It was made by him. All these things were made. And it was created through him. And it was created for him. It's all by him and through him and for him. It's all about him. That should create praise in us. When we think about these things, think about him creating the visible, all we can see, all the created order. The invisible, the angelic realm that we can't even see was created by him and sustained by him. That should create a praise in us, a desire to praise him. It should lift him higher and higher and higher. It should, as I've heard pastors say before, old former pastor, he was always saying, when you study Christ, when you study his word, when you learn about these, these attributes of him and his, his power and his work and his characteristics, your, your head is lifted up. He's like, the way he always put it is he's like, he takes your chin and says, you're, you're navel gazing, right? You're just looking down. And he just picks your head up and look to heaven. Look to Christ. Look to Christ and be, be, be filled with joy. Filled with peace, filled with, with excitement, filled with praise. That's what this should do to us as we're studying this. And in verse 17, he continues on and says, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Here we see the revelation of the immutability of the existence of Jesus Christ. He never changes. He's before all things. He is and was and always will be the same. Paul is not beginning a disconnected thought here. It's not like he says, period, start something new. He's continuing with his description of Jesus as the supreme creator who is before all things, both in time and in value. Paul is declaring what Jesus said of himself in John 8.58 when he used the phrase, I am. Jesus is the great I am. They say the um, ego ami, I am. This is who he is. He is before all things. He is pre-existent. He always has been. He always will be. He has no beginning. He has no end. This puts to death once and for all this heresy that Christ was a creating being. He always is. He always will be. He has no beginning. He has no end. And in him all things hold together. When scientists first studied the oxygen molecule uh, at the atomic level, they found something very peculiar. I don't know this other than by reading about it. So if we have way more uh, smarter, that's a terrible way to say it. I'm not very good at grammar either. Smarter scientists in the room can verify this. I'm going by what I read. 
They found a nucleus of the atom that consisted of eight positively charged protons and eight electrically neutral electrons. Or was that neutrons that they found electrically neutral? Thank you. See? I was totally wrong. Thank you, scientists. According to the known laws of physics, what I'm told is this should be impossible. I mean, I played with magnets, so I know that that's impossible, right? You put light poles together, what do they do as kids? You put them together, and you let go, and they either flip around, or they shoot across the room. And we just keep doing that until mom says, stop it, right? These protons and and neutrons should have repelled one another. Some unknown force was holding them together, which they eventually learned to break, resulting in something very catastrophic. Does anybody know what that was? When they break the bonds that hold things together, especially radioactive things at a nuclear level, you create the atomic bomb, right? You create this massive amount of energy by shearing the forces and breaking it apart. It's my understanding the way it happens. But there's an amazing amount of energy required to hold them together, and when you break them bonds, huge destructive forces are released. John MacArthur, in his commentary, writes this about this very, this very thing. He said, you should grasp what this implies. So let's grasp what it implies, because he's smart. And if he tells us to grasp it, we should probably do it. It implies that all the massive nuclei have no right to be alive at all. Indeed, they should never have even been created. And if created, they should have instantly blown up. Yet, here they are. Some inflexible inhibition is holding them relentlessly together. The nature of the inhibition is also a secret, one thus far reserved by nature for itself. It was cited out of a book by Chestnut in The Adam Speaks. One day in the future, God will dissolve this strong nuclear force. Peter describes that day as the one day when the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. In Second Peter 3.10, he says that. With the strong nuclear force no longer operative, Coulomb's law will take effect, and the nuclei of atoms will fly apart. The universe will literally explode. Until that time, we can be thankful that Christ upholds all things by the word of his power. Jesus Christ must be God. He made the universe, existed outside and before it, and preserves it. And we can't even comprehend how he does that, as smart as we are. But he does it. He holds it all together. Just think about this. We think about the only, the only when, you, when you take into account this, this atomic force holding nucleus of of things together, holding atoms together. What are we made out of? Those same particles, right? Of at, at the atomic level. Even our own bodies are just fragile. They're held together and we don't know why. Apart from Christ holding even our flesh together, we would spontaneously disintegrate and explode into nothingness. If he was to remove his sustaining power from this world, we would just cease to exist. 
We're on the verge of total destruction at any moment. And yet we exist due to his power and loving kindness. And that causes us to say, praise his holy name. Praise him. And he continues on talking now of of, of creation, of his sustaining power. And in verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Jesus, as Christ, is supreme over all creation. He is the head also of his special creation, the church. The term used here to describe the church is his body. When we are brought from death to life through the saving power of Jesus Christ, we are placed into his body. Romans 12, 4 and 5, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. This body is a living organism which we are a part of and which finds its life and strength and power and direction in the person of Jesus Christ, the head. We, as members of the body, are to look to Christ for our provision, for our direction, our strength, really everything. We're to look to Christ for everything. We who are part of the body are just that, members of the same body with the same head, Christ. We have been brought together to form his body, For his glory. The truly successful Christian life is one which is lived in the confines of the body, fulfilling the role that you have been given, living and moving in communion with one another under the authority of our head, Jesus Christ. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Preeminent. We know that Christ is the beginning of all things in relation to his role of creator. Paul here is now speaking of his role in the creation of the church, the body which he is the head. He is the source and the authority of the church. Paul here continues to magnify the supremacy of Christ in all things. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Paul again uses this phrase firstborn. This time he says of Christ that he is the firstborn from the dead. Again, he is not talking about Christ as being the firstborn, the first one to be raised from the dead, but that his resurrection was was of a premier importance. It was by his resurrection that the church came into existence and gives all believers the hope of a future resurrection to glory. One of my favorite passages of the resurrection. I want to go read it quickly. Romans chapter 1. I go to this almost every time I speak of the resurrection. Because it shows the importance of the resurrection in Jesus Christ in declaring to all of humanity the truth of his divinity. Romans chapter 1 verse 4 says this. Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. He was declared to be the Son of God, divine by the resurrection. That word declared there is the word horizo. What does that sound like to you? Anybody think of the word horizo? 
comes up in a lot of flat earth discussions. <laughs> Horizo. What is that? Horizon, right? Horizon. What does the horizon do? What does it define for us? It defines the earth and the sky, right? There's, there, it delineates something. A horizon, it delineates where something stops and something begins. It, it declares this, this differentiation. So when Jesus rose from the grave, it declared he is truly what he said he was, the Son of God. He is divine. The resurrection is that declaration of his divinity. It's, it's the proof of his divinity, as if he needed it, but it is the proof. He's not just another great man or a glorious angel. He is the preeminent one in everything, including in the resurrection. And in 19 it says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Fullness denotes a complete filling with no gap or void. Like I made my coffee this morning. I, I, I do the pour over coffee. And if somebody gets into my teapot before I make my pour over, because I take my water and fill it up, put it in the teapot so I have an exact amount of water, well, somebody, me, left water in it and pour it and walk away and come back. And now you have coffee on the counter, on the floor. It's, it's full with no gap left and overflowing. That's what Christ is. He was full of the fullness of God. There, was, there wasn't almost God with a little gap in, a little space. It was fully God. When you see Christ, you have seen God. Jesus Christ is no less or more God than the Father or the Holy Spirit. He is the exact representation of God. Just as the fullness of God dwells in the Father, and the fullness of God dwells in the Holy Spirit, the Trinity is a divine mystery that the human mind cannot fully comprehend. I would like to say that I'm going to explain it and have full grasp of it. And if anybody ever does that, then walk out of the room because they don't know what they're talking about. Nobody can fully grasp the Trinity. When we attempt, there's really no logical system for reconciling the Godhead. We must just take what Scripture says and believe it. Take what it says and say, this is the truth. And kind of like the... the, the, um, the way that we are responsible or, or we, we suffer for our, for our sins, but yet God can only save us and those two things never really meet. In the Trinity is the same way. You, you can't logically reconcile the Trinity. And when we make an attempt to reconcile the, God te- the Godhead to our mental comprehension, we're in danger of crossing over into heresy. And that's when we need to be careful. In doing this, men have latched on to selected verses and they fell into error when those verses can't be made to cooperate with the whole of Scripture, such as where people take that Christ as the firstborn and then they try to say, well, it says he's the firstborn and they don't try to understand what it's talking about and they don't take the truths of Scripture as a whole and then they run off saying, well, he's a created being and then they end up in heresy. This doesn't mean that we ignore this mysterious doctrine. It just means that we need to be careful to trust the simplicity of the Word of God and be willing to let the mystery remain. How can God exist as one essence 
and yet subsist as three persons with three distinct properties? Understanding what that question entails is vital in helping us to keep from falling into error. God is one God and exists as one undivided essence. He is one. In the same way, the three persons of the Godhead subsist as distinct persons, each being fully and no less God than the other. These are truths. And they each have distinct properties. One way to view this relationship is in terms of procession. It's the way theologians try to explain how this can be. And they look at the terms of procession. The father's property is paternal in that the son proceeds from the father as the only begotten. It's not saying in, in, a, in our mind immediately go to a timeline, right? We start saying, well, God, then he made son. No, it's that he, in relationship to one another in the Trinity, he proceeds as the only begotten. So the father's property is described as being paternal. And therefore, because of that, the son's property is described using a word called filiation. Or it, it's the begotten. Filiation is being defined as a manner in which a thing relates to another from which it is derived or descended from in some aspect. It's a paternal relationship. And it's, again, not speaking of a father created a son, but it's in how they relate to one another. The father is the one that begets the son. The Holy Spirit's property is defined with a term they use called spiration. And it defines the relationship between the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son as if being breathed out. That word spiration refers to a breathing out. So these tombs, they're a little confusing when you try to start grasping this and try to start thinking about the Trinity in this way. And then they can make your head spin, at least Let me rephrase that. They can make my head spin a little bit trying to just grasp it all. But it helps to try to understand and grasp God a little bit. What what is true is that he exists in the essence as one undivided God. Yet he exists as well fully as these three persons of the Trinity who are differentiated only by their relationship to one another. Deuteronomy 6, 4-5 says, Hear, O Israel, this is truth, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord with your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. God is one true God. But it's also just as true that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are these distinct persons, as we've learned here specifically Christ is the fullness of God. So the Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. The Father is not the Son, nor is he the Holy Spirit. And the Son is not the Father, nor is he the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, are you following, is not the Father, nor the Son. These these individually exist as God simultaneously yet distinct. Each of these truths remain and thereby reveal the mystery 
That is God, far above all, revealing to us what he desires and concealing what he desires. You see, some have a difficulty with these things saying, ah, there's a tension that I can't grasp it. And why has God not explained it or helped us to understand it? But Deuteronomy 29, 29 is a very comforting verse when it comes to that. And many of you say, I know exactly where you're going. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. And the answer is the Trinity, God, Christ. There is a mystery to them, and they need to be a mystery. They, they are above all our comprehension. God has revealed what he desires for us to reveal, and he's hidden what he desires to hide. And in this passage, we see that Jesus is truly God and truly man. He is supreme, and Paul has just displayed. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. He is before all things. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. He is the firstborn from the dead. He is preeminent. By him, through him, and for him, all things were created. In him, all things hold together. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Praise his holy name. And so what I encourage you to do is to go someday, some, sometime today, while this is still fresh, the teachings of Christ and his supremacy and who he is and his work among you and, and all these things of Christ, go back to Psalm 145 and read it and spend a moment today. Take a moment and just spend in praise and worship of who he is. He is our Lord and Savior. He is God, manifest in the flesh. Father, we thank you. We praise you for who you are. You are good You're holy, you're righteous, you're worthy of our praise. And I pray that for just a moment today, we've been reminded, we've been encouraged, and our eyes have been lifted up to heaven to view the majesty and the wonder and the glory that is Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. We have three groups today, right?